Nobody expected him at home to get anything out of it. Nobody expected that he would lift sanctions or, or that Trump would lift sanctions or recognize Crimea as Russian. I think everybody understood that the symbolism was what mattered of the summit. And the Russians I spoke to have all been saying it is a great first step. And they really believe that there's going to be more steps after this, that, the, that it doesn't end with Helsinki. It starts with Helsinki. I think that's really what they're hoping for, maybe through, like, you know, really squeezing their cross fingers. I'm Alina Poyakova, and you're listening to the Lawfare Podcast, July 17th, 2018. On Monday, U.S. President Donald Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin met in Helsinki for their first one-on-one summit. At the summit, the U.S. President said that he trusted the Russian President's denial of election interference over his own intelligence community. In the United States, Fuhrer followed on both sides of the aisle. To break down what happened and what it means, I spoke today with Julia Yoffe, correspondent at GQ and longtime Russia observer, and Ian Bremer, president of the Eurasia Group. We talked about why nobody else was in the room with Trump and Putin during their over two-hour one-on-one meeting. What Russia's compromise on Trump really might be, and whether this summit actually moved the needle on U.S.-Russia policy at all. What was gained and what was lost? Was this a win for Putin, an embarrassment for Trump? We talked about it all. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 330, Julia Yoffe and Ian Bremmer on the Trump-Putin Summit. Ian, Julia, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Howdy. So... Let's start backwards. Uh, let's start from the end and go to the beginning. So today we had this interesting uh, press conference the president held in regards to what he said during the Helsinki meeting, uh, where the president seemed to be walking back his desire to throw under the bus his intelligence community. Ian, what happened? Well, a lot of Republicans were deeply upset with uh, the way he presented publicly yesterday in Helsinki. If you were watching Fox News, they appeared to be like CNN for several hours, right? I mean, generally speaking, not Hannity, but most of the coverage- Most of the coverage was, um, yeah, kind of fake newsy. It was kind of like Trump really mishandled this. And uh, they were calling him to the carpet. So uh, he read a statement that obviously he did not want to read. It was prepared for him. And uh, he said that he said would instead of wouldn't. He had said the sentence should have been, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be Russia, the hacking. And as you know, presidents frequently have difficulty with double negatives. So you can see how Trump might have gotten himself in trouble on this one. Yeah, Are there this, other presidents you can cite who had pro- problems with double negatives? Well, there aren't like any I'm not other, not a crook. There aren't any other presidents that I wouldn't be able to cite for that. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So we have this bizarre incident today where the president reads the statement saying, "I meant to say not. I misspoke. It's all good now." Why did the president feel compelled to do this? Uh, Julia, take us back all the way to Monday. What was that? Years ago. (laughs) Uh, What happened was Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, and Donald Trump, the president of the U.S., had a prolonged tete-a-tete with really no note takers, just the two of them and their translators. 
we don't know, might not ever know what the two men spoke about for so long. Then they came out and had this press conference that was just, I had to like screw my jaw back on several times during this press conference. But the most notable you thing- the only one? Hmm? You yeah. You weren't the only one? Uh, I, I, I was would, okay. <laughs> you had TMJ, you had the opposite problem. I, I just I just kind of, I, I'm beyond- shock at this okay. point but we can get to that later okay so what happened was well it was several things he talked about how you know people say it was russia but you know dan coates the director of national intelligence and some other people as he said came to him and said it was russia and he said but i talked to putin and he was very strong and powerful in his denials i believe that's almost an exact quote and i don't see a reason why it would be russia so basically on in a for, on foreign soil, standing next to the person who directed the hacking of our presidential election, Donald Trump cited, sided with Vladimir Putin over his own intelligence agencies. He also went on to bash uh, President Obama, the FBI, the American press, Democrats. He went on and on about Hillary Clinton's emails, which was just stunning two years, you know, two years later, him reprising this theme, talking about how he won the election, going into his electoral college count versus hers. It was just a stunning, uh, the two of them went down, both of them went down these conspiracy theory rabbit holes. Um, so in other words, he basically took one of his standard rallies from, you know, a red state in the US and he brought it on the road. To Helsinki. I mean, that's what yeah. I saw. Well, I think it went beyond that. I mean, obviously, the response to this meeting was, uh, I mean, watching the conference, absolutely jarring just to see the image of a U.S. president standing next to the Russian president and basically confirming uh, the Russian narrative of the world, exactly, uh, which is a propaganda narrative, which serves the Russian interests and doing nothing to defend or to even state uh, the U.S. interests. Um, and at one point, I found it particularly fascinating uh, that Putin had to explain U.S. policy to the journalists in the audience on Crimea. That's right. Um, so the whole meeting, I think, in the media, um, even in Fo on Fox News by some commentaries, though not all, uh, was portrayed as a huge loss diplomatically, uh, in terms of perceptions, optically to Trump, and a huge win for Putin. And it's exactly how the Russian media saw it as well. Isn't that right, Julia? Yeah, they were saying uh, Russian media was basically talking about how Putin was, you know, the leader of the world, that he got everything he wanted out of this summit, that he was the one who looked strong and uh, Trump looked weak, that this was kind of a confirmation that Trump's main partner on the world stage is Russia, not NATO, not the EU, which he had called a foe going into it. But that was, you know, one week and an, an infinity ago. Yeah. And, and that just basically, I, I think what was so stunning is how seamlessly the Trump narrative and the, and the Russian narrative merged again in front of our eyes because they, that narrative serves Trump's purposes better. And Ian, you know, there's been a lot of reporting on the summit uh, that has been an embarrassment to the United States. A lot of uh, Republican leaders have come out and said this uh, openly. Some of the usual suspects, yes. uh, John McCain, for example, 
um, yeah. Flake, exactly. But, you know, s- some people they wouldn't have expected. I think Tom Cotton came out with a strong uh-huh. statement. So we're seeing some backlash among President's usual supporters, as we're saying. But at the end of the day, you know, nothing changed in U.S. policy. Right. So, look, I think that there are a lot of ways to portray this meeting. One way to portray it is that this was a fantastic gift to the anti-Trump folk in the United States. It allowed CNN to report almost exclusively on Trump supporters dissing the president. Huge gift, something that they clearly don't want to do, they won't be doing for long, but for now, damage control mode, right? And you've got a big investigation that is principally, though certainly not completely, about Russia. And this made Trump look weak in the context of that investigation, made it smell like there's something there, right? And he can't stop the investigation. It's well beyond just a couple of people. It's fast. It's expansive. There's a lot of indictments. People are flipping. They're talking. And so Russia's going to be a really big story after the midterm elections. He did himself an enormous disfavor, possibly as much of a disfavor for the popular narrative as he did when he fired Comey to begin with, which got all of this started. So that's a big deal. But the question you just asked is an important policy question for many of the people listening to this podcast right now, which is, well, what exactly happened? Now, if Trump had a two-hour-plus meeting with Putin privately with only the translators, there are no contemporaneous note-takers, which is, by the way, exactly what he did during that second meeting that he didn't disclose during the dinner at the G20, and if Trump were a dictator, I'd be very worried. But he's not. And, you know, We need to recognize that U.S. policy towards Russia under the Trump administration continues to be hardline policy. And the reason for that has almost nothing to do with President Trump. It has to do with the fact that Trump is a dictator. And so you've got tough sanctions. They've been getting tougher. Why? Because a lot of people around Trump and in the GOP and Congress are saying we need tougher sanctions against Russia. He didn't say anything about recognizing Crimea. He didn't suspend military exercises in the Balts. He's spending a lot more money on defense. And the Trump administration has a horrible relationship with Russia. The Obama administration had a horrible administration with Russia at the end. I think that's going to continue. So, I mean, the fact is we need to understand that as much as the American collective headspace has been dominated by Trump in a way that it has not been dominated by anything since OJ... Right. I mean, really, and, and for more than just a couple of weeks, I mean, you know, if this guy just had a white Bronco speeding down the 405, it'd be so much easier. But no, it's like for years. And yet his ability to actually move something as simple as U.S. foreign policy towards Russia, which is usually within the ken of a U.S. president, mm-hmm. has been virtually nil. That's I think right. that's an important point. That's right. And so you point to this uh, decoupling or untethering that we've observed throughout this administration between Trump's rhetoric and his desire to have a closer relationship with Putin and Russia on the one hand, and then his administration doing something that's completely opposite of that, which is pursuing a quite aggressive Russia policy. And it seems to me like the summit was Trump's opportunity to try to close that gap in his favor, and he completely shot himself in the foot, and now has given much more uh, fodder to his uh, to his critics in his own party and also in the Democratic Party. I think Trump 
knew that he could not close that gap, and I suspect the investigation is a big part of that. He did not have any advisors in that two-plus-hour meeting was supposed to only be 90 minutes. Why? People said, some people speculated it's because they were going to upset the meeting, they were going to be harder aligned. No, if he doesn't call on Mike Pompeo, Mike Pompeo is not talking in that meeting. No, the issue is that they would leak. The issue is that what Trump wanted to discuss with Putin was going to get out, and Trump doesn't actually want that discussed. Now, I don't know if that's because Trump intended to talk about the hacks and the midterm elections Mm -hmm. and other things or finances or whatever, or just he was concerned that Putin might say something and he didn't want anyone else to be part of the message he needed to hear. Whatever it is, Trump at the very least knew that he wanted to be on listening mode with Putin without the concerns of anything incriminating that his cabinet would have to potentially testify on. And I think that that meant that there was never going to be a close between him and the and the rest of the administration on Russia. Julia, you well, agree with this assessment? Yeah. And, and this is also what happened on the sidelines of the G20 when he first met with Putin in Hamburg. They flew out Fiona Hill, his, you know, his NSC director for for Russia. And she apparently helped in the preparations, but they excluded her from the meeting because they didn't want leaks, which is also kind of it's kind of interesting that you don't trust your own NSC Russia director. I also think that he can't really close the gap on this because in watching that press conference, I think I finally realized why he can't just say, you know what? Yes, the Russians meddled in the election. We're going to get tough on them. Screw you, Vladimir Putin. Don't ever do this again. If he were to say that, he admits that the cloud of illegitimacy over his win in 2016 and therefore his entire presidency is real and not fake news. And I can't imagine a president... Even even somebody who is less narcissistic than Trump doing that. I mean, no president would say, you know what, there is a question about my legitimacy. And that's just, I, I think, a non-starter for anyone. Well, you wrote an interesting column in, in GQ um, earlier that basically laid out this notion that there is sort of compromise or blackmail that uh, the Russians have on on Trump, but it's not what we think, Right. Well, it is what we think. I think... um, Or it's not what we suspect. Yeah. Somebody much smarter than me said this about a year ago, that we're looking for this stuff that is yet to be uncovered, and we're waiting for this smoking gun when so much of the really bad stuff is already out in the open. We had Trump publicly saying during the campaign, Russia, if you're listening... Please hack. (laughs) Yeah. Please hack Hillary Clinton. Find those emails. I mean, that's and and there was an outcry at the time. And to quote a, a friend, so say you know, it, Julia, say it. No collusion. There you go. Uh, <laughs> I think, look, you know, and then it, and that also brought down a whole torrent of you know a Republican tweeted his outrage and did nothing. So much stuff is already out there, you know, the the DNC hack, the timing of WikiLeaks dumping those stolen emails, the Podesta, I mean, even before this investigation, the Mueller investigation started, and and before all of the press reports, things looked pretty bad, and now the case is even bigger. I think the compromise is the fact that they helped Trump with the election, and he can't admit to that. There's no way. And I think part of the reason that I was suspicious of the PP tape narrative, uh, if you don't know what that is, 
Google it. Everyone knows. Everyone knows what that is. Okay. So seeing how Trump behaves, I can't imagine that he wouldn't lash out at, at someone he felt had something on him and was using it to pressure him. You just look at how he lashes out at anybody he thinks is making him do something he doesn't want to do. And if the compromise is a stolen election, the people who are pressing on him are the media, the Democrats, Mueller, his Department of Justice, Congress, and he's lashing out at all those people. And Putin is the one who's being smart and saying, no, Donald, of course we didn't meddle. You did that all by yourself. You are a genius. You are a very stable genius. And you did run a brilliant campaign. I mean, during the press conference, Trump went on and on about how he ran a, quote, brilliant campaign and how he won, how he beat her clean. What's been incredibly savvy move by Putin is the entire time he has never criticized Trump. He's been very careful to never say anything negative about Trump, even as the administration was rolling out these increasingly harsh yes. sanctions. And clearly, he's positioned himself now as an ally of Trump against Trump's perceived enemies, meaning the deep state, mm -hmm. the American intelligence community, and the Democrats. And I mean, Putin then goes on Fox News the day, uh, the same day as the summit, and basically lays out that this is a, that he's in agreement with Trump on what's actually constraining him, preventing him from pursuing the kind of agenda with Russia that they both want. Well, what is that agenda? I also, that's what I did. I don't understand. That's what I didn't understand about the summit, period. And I, and from what I was able to glean, I think the Russians didn't really understand why the summit was happening either. You had Peskov, uh, Putin's press spokesman, saying on the eve of the summit, we don't know what this is about. There's no set agenda. They're just going to, they're going to have a freewheeling discussion. It, it was such a, That's you know, right. it's also the way that both sides have now portrayed it after the fact is that they prevented a war which we knew wasn't going to happen anyway. That was the Singapore summit. No, 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 no. No, I know. It, I'm just giving you a hard time. Um, they're, they, they, it's the new pardon. It's, it's good to prevent wars. I appreciate that. I think that it is clear that Trump had more that he actually wanted out of this meeting than Putin did, which is that Trump wants a legitimate, clean election, right? That he ever, that he won fair and square, as you said. But that he, he has to go to Putin to get that validation is telling. Yes, of course it is. And of course, I mean, to the extent that further support might be forthcoming, I don't think that Trump would be bothered by that. He's made very clear yeah. that he would welcome Russian support, very interesting in the Mueller investigation, would welcome, um, you know, sort of a joint U.S.-Russia cyber center. Meanwhile, um, the entire cyber coordination office in the White House no longer exists under Bolton. I mean, cyber is by far the most important issue that we have to deal with with the Russians, and it wasn't really talked about. Now, here I'm not talking about the elections. I'm talking about their attacks on U.S. critical infrastructure. Now, these are all real problems, and yet I, I don't see Putin as winning. I mean, a lot of people do. Uh, he's making us look stupid. That's true. But, but that's Putin, enough, isn't but it? Well, I mean, it may be enough for Putin. His approval ratings are a lot lower than they've been mm -hmm. at any point since he's been president. He's down in the low 60s. And, you know, he is, I do believe he's a master tactician. I don't, a poker player. I don't think he's a chess player. I don't think he thinks long term. Um, long term, he's getting eaten by the Chinese. 
uh, long term. I mean, the person aren't we you, all though? <laughs> well, no. I mean, I mean, you can argue, but I mean, I would. I think the United States, with the world's reserve currency and a great geopolitical position, the world's largest food producer and energy producer, and universities Chinese want to come to, and all the rest. I mean, we have the and ability. And great puppet to, uh, videos. And great puppet videos, which the Chinese knock off, but they're nowhere near as good. Right? <laughs> um, Why don't you go ahead and, and plug the uh, the puppet show? The puppet show. Yeah. No, everyone should have puppet a puppet regime. show. Ours is called Puppet Regime. That's right. There is not a Chinese puppet yet, a Chinese president puppet, because the Chinese president is boring as a puppet. There is a Putin puppet. There's a Trump puppet. There's a Zuckerberg puppet. There will soon be a Moose the There's Dog puppet. There's a Kim Jong-un puppet. There's a Kim Jong-un puppet. All these things happen. My favorite puppet. There's a John who Bolton raps, puppet who, who, is, who is a little creepy, to oh, be Oh, I fair. haven't seen that you one. Know, he's new. We just okay. rolled him out. Yeah, he uh, actually does a dating application with Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, through What's Mark it called? Through, What's it called? It's called Down the Zuck, um, <laughs> as, as it would be. But we were talking about... Oh, this is this is deteriorating, right? Uh, <laughs> but we were we it's were, accelerating. We were talking about um, how Putin's not doing all that well, and I mean, you ask me, is Russian influence increasing or decreasing in the world right now? Overall, my argument would be decreasing. Really you say interesting. Increasing? I, you know, I've always been in agreement with you on this, but I don't know. You saw you Romneying on me. A little bit. I just, you know, I was in Brussels last week on the sidelines of the NATO summit and seeing the Europeans just freaking out and trying to, they're, tr well, no, they're trying to keep it together and say, it's okay, it's okay, you know, transatlantic values, reimagining the transatlantic relationship, all these fluffy buzzwords. Meanwhile, Trump is just taking a wrecking ball to NATO, to the British government, to the EU. And in the meantime, Putin is host that week hosted um, the Jordanians, the Israelis, the Iranians. Who I mean, and the now, World Cup. Let's not forget and, and the World Cup. Yeah, they so, had to pay a lot for it. No question. Look, I mean, I would still rather be the Chinese working with the Europeans. Sure, um, sure. You know, I mean, the the Russians absolutely have a constellation of relatively marginal and marginalized leaders that they can work with really effectively. But the fact is that the Russian economy is yeah. tiny and deteriorating. Their infrastructure is falling apart. And they have to Did rely. you see, by the way, speaking of the World Cup and infrastructure, yeah. the day after the World Cup ended, there was a torrential downpour in Volgograd and washed away basically all of the ground. In front, like the stadium, the brand new stadium almost collapsed. Ooh. The day after the World mm -hmm. Cup, you know, they, but that's also so, so it's a Potemkin Stadium, right? But this is also, um, it's such a perfect metaphor for for Russia and the way Putin sees things, right? You just have to get through another day. You just have to make it to the end of the World Cup, and then we'll figure it out. And yes. then the stadium collapses. Exactly. But we right. made it through. It's fine. We just got to survive. And but and that's the thing. And and I I also think that that's the way the Europeans think about Trump right now. Um, but yeah. um, <laughs> if you ask me who I'm betting on long term, yeah. I'm betting on the American. I'm betting on the Chinese. I ain't betting on the Russians. But look, okay. but I think this is exactly Better the point that, that Russia is a weak country in many ways in terms economically, certainly no match for the United States, not a real competitor to the United States in all of these ways that you're talking about, Ian. But then you have the U.S. president confirming and propping up Putin very publicly in the summit. And you could say, well, there was nothing really lost or gained here in terms of real policy changes. Uh, but if anything was gained, it's that Trump looked weak, so the U.S. looked weak, and Putin looked much stronger, 
and you know much more strutting and as a, as a global leader I, I think it's and clearly, a statesman. It's clearly true that if you are the world's only superpower, you can do a lot more damage to yourself than other countries can do to you. And that was certainly true with the massive overreaction to 9-11. That is certainly true with the own goal um, that we've had with you know, things like Guantanamo, um, and I mean, you know, the f way the financial crisis happened, Bernie Madoff, you name it, right? There are ways that the Americans have lost a lot of influence in the ability that we have to propagate our model internationally. Trump is another one of those things. But that's very different from saying that the Russians are really gaining. Well, right? I think they gain in terms of perceptions. I think the person that really loses here is Trump. Correct. In other words, and I think it's not the United States. I, I think right. that this really makes Trump more vulnerable as the investigations go on. And they've not even started to affect the Trump administration directly yet. They will. And so the fact that Trump is doing things that legitimizes the single most mortal threat to constraining his presidency. I'm not saying ending it, but constraining it making it a lot harder for him to get stuff done, to be credible, and to have a legacy. Um, you know, right now, he's a laughing stock in a lot of countries, and, he, and, and a lot of people are frightened of him. I think in six or 12 months' time, we're going to probably be having a different conversation. And the only thing that gives me pause before saying that really confidently is a Trump that is that weak and that embattled might start breaking some serious stuff. Mm -hmm. And the likelihood of a real war in the next couple of years is higher than I'd like it to be. I don't think it's high, but I don't think we can be complacent about it. Even though he and Putin just avoided war? Well, yes. <laughs> uh, in part because, I mean, look, clearly the, the tail risks around things like a war with Iran or North Korea or even Russia are higher under Trump than they would be under any other president that we know. With Russia, I think the risk has less to do with Trump himself than if this investigation ends up actually truly exposing a lot of people that are really close to Putin. And Putin gets angry about that, then I think we'll start seeing things on American territory that the UK has been seeing on their own territory. And I, I suspect we'll react to that. So I do think the risks of the US-Russia relationship deteriorating dramatically beyond where they are now are actually a lot greater than the risks of U.S.-Russia right. becoming collusionary yes. under Trump, yes. in my that's view. Right. Yes. So I think we can basically agree that the summit was uh, an embarrassment to the American president, a likely gain to the Russian president, and then a mountain and nothing gained or nothing lost in terms of actual policy. Yeah. Can I just add one thing to why it was a gain for Putin? Again, Again, because he is a short-term thinker, you know, it was one or a couple extra days of glowing coverage of him strutting around on the world stage, doing stuff instead of focusing on the fact that he just his government just raised the retirement age. That's right. And For this pensions, is yeah. this mm -hmm. is why this pe the pension reform, which is why his ratings have taken a nosedive, which is why there's like growing. This is one of the few things Russians will protest over, not about political ideas and freedom of speech, but about these kind of bread and butter issues, pocketbook issues. Authorities have had to already go into repressive mode. It was no coincidence, despite what the finance minister told the press, uh, it was no coincidence that the pension reform was rolled out on the first day of the World Cup. Mm -hmm. And this is just, this was a couple extra days of glowing coverage of, you know, 
kind of putting th- things into perspective for Russians. Like things might be a little tough economically. The economy might be stagnating. But look, Russia's we live in a great again. country. And so Russia's your listeners again. understand the point fully that Julie just made. A lot of Russian men with this new retirement age as it gets implemented are going to die before they retire. Absolutely. Right? So, because life expectancy for men in so Russia is, is very low. Is it's it, in the 60s I still. Low, low 60s. 60s yeah. Which is an improvement over where it was. It was 58 uh, at one point, I remember. Yeah. yeah in, uh, in 2012, it was that, you know, 60% of men don't live past 60 in Russia. Now it's improved a little bit, but... And can we stick with Russian domestic issues for a moment? Because, Ian, you had also brought up uh, Putin's slipping approval rating earlier, uh, which he's now back to, I think, 2011 uh, levels, which is before the annexation of Crimea. The game which, is also, which is also before the mass protests in Moscow exactly, and big cities. Exactly, in 2011 and 2012. And so this summit seems that was perfectly timed for Putin to try to make a big show out of and to really showcase himself on the world stage exactly because domestically things are starting to slip a little bit. And of course, this is Putin's, you know, he's getting up there in age. Constitutionally should be her la- his last term, but I think few people... Constitutionally, his last right, term right. should have been ended a while in 2008. Ago in the new constitution. But uh, I think most people expect that he'll stay on as long as he possibly can. Yet, I can't help to suspect that most in the Russian elite see him as a bit of a lame duck and already starting to kind of position themselves for a potential future. And so I think for Putin, the summit was critically important for all of these domestic reasons, not just for actually getting anything out of it in terms of foreign policy, which he didn't. Yeah, and I think nobody expected him at home to get anything out of it. Nobody expected that he would lift sanctions or or that Trump would lift sanctions or recognize Crimea as Russian. I think everybody understood that the symbolism was what mattered of this summit. And the Russians I spoke to have all been saying it is a great first step. And they really believe that there's going to be more steps after this, that the, that it doesn't end with Helsinki. It starts with Helsinki. I think that's really what they're hoping for, maybe through like, you know, really squeezing their crossed fingers. So I want to roll back the time a little more and go back to to the beginning um, as we're going backwards. Julia, you already brought up the the NATO summit, uh, the visit to the United Kingdom by Trump, which will happen last week, which seems like a million years ago somehow already. And I know you were in Brussels, as you said. What was your sense you know, during the NATO summit you know, obviously the media coverage was very much focused on how Trump was lambasting the allies 2%, then they went up to 4%. But what was your impression on the ground of how the Europeans were kind of looking at the at the Trump phenomena, at, at the role of the United States vis-a-vis Europe? You know, I think there was a lot of kind of uh, group therapy happening, because I was also at a conference that was on the sidelines. I wasn't in the actual NATO summit, obviously. But there was a lot of Americans calming down Europeans, Europeans calming down Americans, this kind of group therapy of together we can get through this. It also seemed a little bit like, uh, you know, Macron and Merkel and Trudeau were the kind of parents patiently waiting out the tantrum of a child, like waiting for him to run down his sugar high, stop breaking things and just pass out on the floor so they could put him in bed. You know, like they were just like, Okay. All right. Donald, Donald said some things. Um, they were not true things. You know, like the, the, the stuff about the spending where he said, you know, he said that the, spe- he made everybody spend more. And, and they were like, yes, yes, we're going to spend more. And then after he leaves, they're like, we didn't promise to spend. These are existing commitments that we've made after 2014, after the incursion. 
into Ukraine and Crimea. It was, but it was, it was kind of people just trying to get through. And, and as the week went on, when he arrives in the UK and gives this interview to uh, the son and says that he basically would rather not have Theresa May be prime minister, which is insane. Uh, you know, that's essentially meddling in another country's internal affairs. You know, the white knuckles got a little whiter, I would say. Hmm. Ian, so contextualize the, the Helsinki summit for us. I mean, it comes uh, at the tail end of uh, Brussels, of London, all seem to be pretty disastrous for the U.S. relationship with European allies. What's your sense of, of this en- entire week? What's the bigger picture here? Uh, I think the NATO meeting uh, from a global perspective is much more important. Um, let's all keep in mind that before Trump was elected, NATO had an existential crisis. Doesn't really know what its purpose is. Spending remains way too low. Europe is really divided. Turkey and Greece are kind of fighting each other. The Turks and the Americans are fighting each other in Syria. Many European allies feel like we should be working more closely with the Russians, the Hungarians in particular, aspire to support that illiberal model. And so now Trump shows up and as opposed to trying to hide it under the rug or prop it up a little, he just jumps on it, stamps Mm -hmm. on it, hopes it breaks, right? I mean, hoping to break really weak institutions. In the United States, Trump doesn't have much impact because the U.S. has really resilient institutions. We have deep institutions. We have a deep bureaucracy. We may not have a deep state. (laughs) we 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 have many things that are actually very resilient. NATO used to be resilient. It isn't anymore. The G7 used to be resilient. is isn't anymore, right? I mean, the Iranian deal was really not resilient, and Trump broke it. And so, I mean, most of our traditional European allies are deeply concerned about the sustainability of the U.S. relationship that they have, um, and if it lasts four years, and how much damage, and what happens if he's reelected. And certainly, I mean, the good thing about the NATO summit is that all of America's NATO allies kind of stuck to the same play sheet. They all basically said, hey, we're doing more. But none of them tried to throw other allies under the bus. None of them tried to really curry favor directly with Trump at the in, in opposition to the others. They liked that. And then it was the Dutch Prime Minister, Rutte, who in the last intervention of the last meeting said to Trump, why don't you just go out and declare victory? Like, we're all spending $33 billion more since you became president. Why don't you go out and just say that? And, of course, Trump loves the last thing he heard. So he did. He went and he gave a press conference. He did exactly that. Here's the problem. His relationship with Macron is so toxic. And he had said to Macron, at one point, Macron was talking about how much more France was doing. And and, and Trump's response, Macron, Trump cut him off. And he said to Macron, he was like, oh, he said, I'm surprised to hear that. He said, you must not be in power that long. In, in other words, implying that if Macron, if Macron stays in power for another year or two, he's only going to really screw it up. Macron's relationship with Trump is completely broken and toxic at this which point. Which is which is crazy because it was a it was described um, as a bromance, bromance. before. Yeah, it was described you know, by the g- media as a bromance, and and Macron was trying to make it publicly okay. And the private meetings that Macron had with Trump when Macron came to Washington were a shambolic disaster. Um, but we can talk about that if you want. But the point is that that relationship is deeply broken, as privately broken as Merkel's is publicly uh, with Trump. And and so as a consequence, Macron immediately put out a statement saying, no, we didn't agree to all that. Didn't need to do that. He, he 
undercut the American president immediately well, has, out of a he, sense of peace. He, he has domestic politics to deal with. I think this is uh, Susan Glasser has made this point that Trump doesn't realize how uh, dom- how this plays nope. domestically in these countries where Trump is so deeply unpopular, was, as we saw in the UK, yep. that it makes it easier for these European leaders to basically flip him the bird. Like he, they don't have to kowtow to him. They're not his employees. They have a public at home that hates Trump and they and that gives them more room to maneuver. So I suppose, you know, if we want to end on some points of optimism here uh, as a wrap up short as a wrap up from this week. (laughs) Well, I I can list a couple and you can add to it if you want, if you see anything else there, any any sort of shining uh, diamonds in the rough, I suppose. Um, I think in the Helsinki summit, we avoided the worst case scenario. There was a lot of speculation uh, that Trump would recognize Crimea, that he would give up sanctions, uh, renege on U.S. military commitments. The list went on. Uh, Europeans were anxious about this, as you were saying, Julia. That didn't happen. No policy change. So Trump got embarrassed. Okay, maybe we can all live with that. I think in Europe, a NATO, despite uh, Trump's uh, rhetoric and contentious adversarial positioning towards allies, if you read the NATO communique, it's actually a very good document that lays out a very clear strategy on Russia. Um, it lays out uh, a lot of uh, achievements that NATO has committed itself to. So I think we are seeing NATO revamp in a significant way. Trump, maybe maybe he should take credit for that, frankly, because I do think there's a realization among Europeans that you know we have to start thinking about our own strategic autonomy and our own spending on defense and security in a way that they probably weren't really thinking about before Trump. Because even though all U.S. presidents complained about spending, none of them were really as pushy, you could say, or as aggressive about it as Trump has been. So I think to my mind, um, you know, the UK visit was deeply, deeply problematic. Trump tried to kind of walk it back and even call his own interview fake news at one point, which was incredible to watch. Uh, and I think it ended sort of in a neutral way, uh, shockingly enough. Uh, so I think, you know, overall, maybe this whole week, um, has certainly been damaging to Trump, perhaps damaging to the United States as an extension of Trump. Uh, but at the end of the day, it didn't really get us into a much worse space when it comes to real changes on policy. Trump leaving the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Trump leaving the Iranian deal, much more significant, lasting. Trump starting a trade war potentially with the Chinese. Uh, certainly questions around NAFTA, automotive tariffs coming on, all of those things would have more significant lasting ramifications than what we've seen over the last week. Definitely, NATO's getting weaker. That's a real problem. It was a problem before. It's getting worse now. Europe's getting more divided. Trump facilitates that in some ways, bolsters it perhaps a little bit in others. But I think the most important takeaway from the last week is that Trump himself has become more vulnerable on the single issue that is most problematic to him. And to the extent the things that we are worried most about in the short term are the potential for Trump to be a risk in and of himself, I think that um, the baseline becomes a little more optimistic. The tail risks become a little more pessimistic. Julia, what's your what's your big takeaway or optimistic point if you want to make one? Yeah, I, I actually agree with Ian on all of that. I do. I do think though that the longer this goes on the longer that there's you know week after week of donald trump as wrecking ball even if it's symbolic even if it's reputational it does it does do damage it adds up the little chinks in the armor add up and you know you also have to think about what the course correction is going to look like you know we after bush yeah you know, 
the mid 2000s weren't like this, but you know, there was a lot of freaking out all the time about all the crazy stuff George W. Bush was doing. And the course correction was Obama, which also created a lot of problems in foreign policy. So it's even when we inevitably get done with Trump's presidency, be it one or two terms, what are the lasting effects going to be? What is the course correction going to look like? Um, will we have knocked ourselves down a few pegs unnecessarily? That's right. And, and will Russia have actually raised itself up a few pegs as a result, in, unjustifiably so perhaps? Yeah. Um, well, Ian, Julia, thanks so much. This was a great conversation. And thanks for joining the podcast. Pleasure. Yay. <laughs> the Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. If you haven't yet, please take a moment to promote the Lawfare Podcast on Twitter or Facebook and to give us a rating. Review it wherever you found us. Jen Portia Howell edits the Lawfare Podcast, and our music, as always, is performed by Sophia Yan. And if you don't know yet, check out Gizmondo's Media's Puppet Regime. I hear there's one coming on the summit. And until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>